0: Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime.
1: I'm Nick, and I am not a fan.
0: Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, we're talking jody foster stalkers ronald reagan alabama governor george wallace martin scorsese's taxi driver and oil tycoons back in 1981 an obsessed fan of Jodie foster attempted to assassinate ronald reagan in broad daylight This led to national and state reforms to the insanity defense in the U.S. and the national implementation of background checks for gun purchases via the Brady Act.
1: what (laughs) part of this sounds like so sensational exciting and there's like the nerdy little legal addendum to it well
0: I want to say I guess I included that because this Uh is such a weird twisty turny story Uh I thought it I just think it's so fun and it's it just goes everywhere but Uh it also just led to all of these huge laws afterwards just because of the way the whole thing panned out so I Uh think it's kind of that's interesting to me
1: well I know a little bit about the Jodie Foster stalker guy because of the Sondheim musical yeah right and Taxi Driver is one of my favorite movies of all time.
0: So you're going to get some Taxi Driver, like, history and stuff and <laughs> the trivia. It's like, it's like very, there's a lot of stuff going on, okay?
1: Your nudie, nerdy enthusiasm is just through the roof today, Miriam. I
0: got to tell you, man. Yeah. I've been wanting to do this story for like a year, and uh-huh. I keep putting it off because I keep thinking, I don't know, like do people hate history <laughs> Do people hate, history? or like, is there more to this? You know, like uh-huh, I, I don't know uh-huh. if it's been overdone or not. Cause I know people talk about Hinckley and like uh-huh. this thing, but actually he just was fully released this year. Oh really? Yeah. This summer. And now he's like, I mean, he's been out for a while, uh-huh. but now he has like no holds barred. So he's got like a Twitter account and he's on YouTube. <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about that,
1: okay. but I
0: just was like, I want to do it, so I'm doing it. And I don't think that you know how... I don't think you know the whole story. Yeah,
1: Muriel's waving her finger in my face with all this attitude. All right, right, we're going to get to the whole story. (laughs) But before we do that, we do want to send major love to Jennifer G for signing up for our Patreon and supporting this podcast. Thank you so much, Jennifer. We also want to thank Cecily Feds for leaving us our newest five-star review on Apple Podcasts.
0: Oh, it's such a good review. We love you, Cecily. If you like to laugh and you love to cry look no further because this podcast... Podcast is perfect for you I started listening about a month ago and I have blown through this series so fast because I just can't wait to hang out with Nick and Muriel <laughs> yes as I listen to Muriel's well-researched and written script thank you I can literally visualize her massive grin as she tells Nikki while he listens in horror and outrage both of those things are true it applies to lots of aspects of our life honestly <laughs>
1: thank you so much cecily those five-star reviews on apple podcasts are huge for us we love you. Uh, and we want to thank everyone who listened to our three Muriel's Grimm episodes yes. that came out last week. And shout out to all of you who reached out to us and told us nice things about you listening to them and enjoying them and playing them for the kids and all that. It is very, very meaningful to us. You all are deeply appreciated.
0: All right. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like, Nick, and I don't want to hear about these kind of things, just go listen to a different podcast
1: plus we'll probably do a little (laughs) cursing and joking so if you're sensitive to that turn us off and go watch the kardashians on hulu
0: Uh, oh which are we're doing that i know we're late to the game but man what a crazy family (laughs) (laughs) all right nikki are you ready to hear this story no okay let's get started So, Jack and Joanne Hinckley welcomed their third child, John Hinckley Jr., into the world on May 29th, 1955. Dad Hinckley was an oil engineer. He was working in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and Joanne was a homemaker. And when John Jr. was a toddler, the family packed up and moved to Dallas, Texas to dig for oil. Mm Mm-hmm. Hinkley Sr., he moved up quickly, and by the time John Jr. was 11, the family had moved to the posh area in Highland Park, Dallas, and into a spacious two-story stone house with a swimming pool shaded by big, massive oak and magnolia trees. So, like, a very fancy house. Sure. When John Jr. was in his teens... His dad borrowed about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars from friends, which, just by the way, don't get me wrong, that's almost a million dollars in today's money. But just a quick
1: little GoFundMe. It's <laughs> I
0: I like, damn, that's a lot. It's like <laughs> yeah. nine hundred thousand uh, dollars. So he borrowed that from friends, and he started the Vanderbilt Energy Company, of which he was both the chairman and president. So it started off being the Hinkley Oil or something, and then uh-huh. up, but that's like what the main company was when it settled. Sure.
1: He's trying to go from middle management to the big boss.
0: Not trying. He, he did it. He's a rocket ship, man. So dad hadn't found Jesus yet, but mom Joanne was a devout Christian and member of the progressive denomination Disciples of Christ, which ironically was the same church the Reagans belonged to. Okay. Also, both Hinckleys like to golf. <laughs>
1: And it's ironic about the Reagans because they their come
0: shuns and- shot him.
1: Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so John Jr. grew up blonde and blue eyed in a luxurious home going to fancy schools. As a kid, he did kid stuff. He was into playing guitar and general kid shenanigans. Sure. But friends say after he started high school, that's when his light sort of began to dim a friend of John Jr.'s from Highland Park High School, who, I don't know, this guy seems more like a frenemy based on what he said. <laughs> Throwing some shade while giving a compliment? I don't know. He told the New York Times in 1981, Hinckley was basically lazy, not peculiar, just really bland, no distinguishable personality, a quote, middle of the rotor, quote, he was a follower, not a leader, and he was basically fairly lazy. He didn't have too many options at that time in life. He was really just a bland personality. Damn,
1: that's not, not a friend at all.
0: Not peculiar in any way. He wasn't. <laughs> he just wasn't a great personality, a jock or intellectual or anything that distinguishing. <laughs> <And> they said. <laughs> yeah. They uh, weird. they said this guy. They were like, "Oh, friend, his friend, who's an out of work." Writer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So he's not a friend. Either he knew him and said all those things about him, or he didn't know him and just thought those things about him. But either way, that's not a friend.
0: Right. Well, whatever. So just keep that in your mind. Sure. In 1974, the summer after Hinckley graduated from high school, the family moved to Colorado to be closer to Vanderbilt Oil headquarters. So the Hinckley family moved into this another very beautiful home mm-hmm. with to ceiling windows overlooking the Rocky mountain foothills in the exclusive suburb of Evergreen, Colorado here. The family flourished, right? More church and golf and community work. His parents attended weekly Bible reading classes and prayer meetings and were a member of the local country club. Dad, was like a staunch conservative Republican, an ardent supporter of Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. The Hinckley's were even family friends of the Bushes before H.W. Bush was tapped to be Ronald Reagan's vice president. All right.
1: So they're, they're really in the mix of things. Sorry, where's Reagan at in his political career at this point?
0: Ah, doing stuff. I don't <laughs> know. He's not
1: president. He's not president yet. <laughs> So this guy in Texas just watching this governor in California being like, that's the man. Right. Exactly. Okay,
0: okay. Sorry. I just <laughs> ran out of brain space for that one. That's fine. Uh, uh, yeah. And at the time, you know, uh-huh. he's like H- Hinckley, John jr's graduated from high school, but he's got nothing going on. He doesn't have great grades. He doesn't know where he's going to yeah, go.
1: Apparently he's just like a blob of a person.
0: It's so- John jr's <laughs> yeah. older brother, Scott, mm-hmm. um, I, the timeline's a little fuzzy, but he, he did graduate from Vanderbilt University. He was vice president at the time, or was about to become vice president of Van, Vanderbilt Oil, eventually becoming president of his dad's mm-hmm. oil company. He was also friends with George W. Bush's, our former president, mm-hmm. uh, his little brother, Neil Bush. So they were all, he was like a mover and a shaker. And then There's
1: a Neil Bush? There's a lot of them. I've heard of like Jeb.
0: Neil ran um, George W.'s campaign. He's like a campaign manager. All right. John Jr.'s sister, Diane, was, you know, she was bright. She went to college. She was a cheerleader. Mm -hmm. She got married young and had kids and, you know, was around the family. So both of them were kind of doing the thing they wanted to do in the most successful version of that. Sure. But that summer of 1974, John Jr. was failing to thrive he couldn't really get a job. He flatlined with his guitar hobby. He complained about dizzy spells and pain in his legs. He really started to gain a bunch of weight and mm. pack on the pounds. But he kept chugging on with societal expectations, so he enrolled in Texas Tech University for the fall.
1: I have a question about this packing on the pounds thing. This is the 70s. Yeah, He probably gained like five pounds, and they are like, this is a huge problem.
0: His mom and dad wrote a book. And yeah, I heard like some a couple excerpts. His mom was really worried about it. But who yeah. knows what that means? I mean, pictures, right. he looks like a normal person from right. today times. Right. But he also exclusively lived off of McDonald's. So <laughs> I think there's something in there. <laughs> He's
1: just getting dizzy from going through the drive-thru again and again and again.
0: I think he was like very prone to just being super down with primarily mcdonald's and then just like chips and stuff so that's that Uh is a that is okay but you know whatever his mom was like i was so worried she clutches her pearls about her 18 year old son gaining weight before college i'm like all right (laughs) anyway (laughs) so while john jr was wrapping up his last few years in high school across the country in wisconsin a kindred spirit was developing in the form of Arthur Herman Bremer. In a working class neighborhood of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, a twenty-one year old unemployed busboy slash janitor was preparing to shoot a president.
1: Really? Okay. <laughs> what do you mean really? You, how is he preparing? Well, that's what I'm gonna tell you about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's just preparing to shoot any president?
0: Really? No,
1: I'm (laughs) kidding. Oh, my God.
0: Okay, so this guy, Arthur Bremer, had always been a pretty weird kid, sort of awkward and quiet, uh, small, blonde. He was the son of a truck driver. He's basically like a disaffected kid from a pretty locally known dysfunctional family. Sure. So he kind of gets through, why are you laughing at me? No, I don't know why I'm laughing.
1: I just got the giggles. I'm sorry. This is serious. Okay. I'm sorry. I do apologize.
0: I can't even look at you. No,
1: literally nothing is funny.
0: Well, this next part's not funny I'm at all. not even
1: laughing anymore. That okay. was last second. Great. This so is this Arthur
0: second. Bremer sort of got through school. Mm-hmm. He's a young man in his early 20s. And he's known as being really antisocial. He has one friend. Mm-hmm. And then in May of 1971, Bremer's only known friend, Thomas Newman, accidentally killed himself oh, no. playing a game of Russian roulette in front of his own little sister. Oh, no.
1: So that fall oh, in
0: 1971, yeah. Bremer decided to strike out on his own. He hated living at home. And so he moved out of his parents' house and got his first apartment.
1: We have to give an RIP to that guy. That needs a moment. That's a straight up RIP right there. And bless his little sister. That's crazy. That's okay.
0: Okay, so he goes and moves Mm -hmm, out of his mm -hmm. parents' house. But after he moves out, his hours get cut from his busboy position because he had been whistling and marching around the dining room during service. Mm -hmm. And he had, he worked at the Milwaukee athletic club and he had started to unnerve customers who had complained about him for like, why is he doing that?
1: Right. Cause that could either be like whistling. First of all, whistling period is a little weird, but then he's either whistling music or just like whistling.
0: Yeah. And marching around the dining room. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something, you know, they were like, it was enough for people to be like, not that's not a charming addition to the dining experience. Right. So after he was demoted, he actually went and complained to Fred Blue Jr. of the Milwaukee Community Relations Commission. He went in to say, I think it's unfair that they've cut my hours down and I'm being, you know, treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. And after interviewing Bremer, Blue wrote, quote, I assess him as bordering on paranoia, at the same time conscientious in doing his job. He continued, he has little communications with his family, very much needs a friend, and then in parentheses, also professional help.
1: Mm, My heart is just swelling for this guy.
0: And after his demotion, he did find a friend. In the winter of 1971, 21-year-old Bremer landed his first girlfriend, a 16-year-old named Joan Pemrich, but... She broke up with him a short time later for acting super weird at a Blood, Sweat, and Tears concert.
1: What's up with Blood, Sweat, and Tears?
0: They went and he was just screaming and jumping up and down and like clapping and stomping in this way that she was like... Okay. Unnerved about it. So
1: he (laughs) brought the whistling and marching energy into... Into
0: the concert. What
1: kind of music is Blood, Sweat, and Tears?
0: I don't know. (laughs) Jamming.
1: Apparently. I know, because I will be honest. Based on the name of that band, which I've never heard of before, his behavior sounds like it might fit in.
0: Their but. number one song is "You Make Me So Very Happy." That one. Nope. I'm so glad you came into my life. Hey, hey, hey. I know that one. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. not like a, like a blood thrashing headbanger, you okay. <laughs> know. I, there think, was, I think Tom Jones covered this. I was going to
1: say, I was like, that's what I thought you were doing is the Tom Jones thing. Okay. So, okay. So he's kind of doing a mosh pit thing and she's like, wow, that was really unchill for this blood, sweat and tears concert. Freaked you got out. To, okay. She's like,
0: I don't want to be around this thing. That's fair. Third. Yeah. So, okay. Mm-hmm. In response, Bremmer to kind of try to get her back. He decided to shave off all his hair mm-hmm. except for his sideburns.
1: Okay. And
0: kind of show her this is my gesture of love for you and that freaked her out more so that relationship ended
1: okay yeah
0: after that didn't work bremer bought a gun and drove around the country stalking then president richard nixon fortunately for nixon this is true. Too many hippies were protesting his like different presidential events yeah. at the time. So he actually had to increase a bunch of his security. Uh-huh. So Bremmer just couldn't get close to Nixon and gave up.
1: I wonder how many other Bremers were like that at the time, driving around with that same thought. And they were just like, damn it. Does everyone is everyone hate this guy? I just can't get close enough.
0: Maybe. I mean, I think the thing that struck me was just how it wasn't that long ago. It was just so easy to go to the president. He was uh-huh. apparently, from what I've read, mm-hmm. a pretty terrible shot. So he knew he had to get very, very, very close to Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. And he just couldn't get close enough. All
1: right. All right.
0: And for the record, Bremer was always pretty adamant that he wasn't political. He just wanted to be famous, and killing the president seemed as a good a path to fame as any. Hmm. With Nixon out of reach, Bremer settled on 1972 presidential hopeful George Wallace. Wallace was the Democratic governor of Alabama, and he was very famous for saying, "quote In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth... I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny. And I say, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So he's that George
1: Wallace. <laughs> he started so poetic. It was just like, who is this? Shakespeare's like, oh, it's that guy. <laughs> that was a nose tie, man. That was a roller coaster. That was quote. what he
0: said in his gubernatorial swearing in ceremony. So he came in hot. His speechwriter was like, this guy who had uh, a bunch of ties to the KKK. Oh, so. uh,
1: great so he's like well we can make it sound really really pretty (laughs) in the beginning it's going to be like everyone's gonna be like wow where's he going with this idea Uh, yikes straight to the bottom
0: (laughs) so that was like kind of back when he was Mm -hmm. you know sworn in as governor he tried to he renounced that as he was running for president but he didn't say it uh so Uh. this wasn't Wallace's first presidential rodeo. This is actually his third time running for the presidential nomination. And actually the first time that he tried to win the Democratic nomination for president in the US, Wallace had planned to run against incumbent president John F. Kennedy. So Wallace actually announced his candidacy in mid-November 1963 in Dallas. And then a few days later on November 22nd, jfk was assassinated in the same city so that's how he kicked off his presidential or his attempt at being president wow
1: i see i think this is interesting history i do so i'm just saying it man because also just like for the record like we're kind of making the joke about the segregation whatever quote for just so like people know like Muriel and I are like an interracial couple. <laughs> Segregation <laughs> is an insane thing. That like, if yeah, it was true- Irony just sometimes, sometimes, I don't know if that plays. <laughs> it's just, you know, just, I don't know.
0: I just think, I think history is really interesting. It's interesting that that's the guy who was famous for saying that. Yeah. And then it's so crazy that he's the guy who announced his candidacy against JFK and then JFK is assassinated in the same city. Right. And then he gets shot. On his stumping speeches. Oh, so, so anyway. that's where we're headed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: that was a little spoiler alert.
0: <laughs> well, you keep asking me. I'm just saying. Okay. okay. I know. <laughs> we're
1: just firing on all cylinders. <laughs> okay. okay.
0: Also, just to add, coincidentally, the assassinations of JFK and his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, which had happened the decade prior, were both obsessions of Bremers. So he, uh-huh. he had already collected a lot of material on their assassinations. So on May 15th, 1972... Two years before John Hinckley graduated from high school in Dallas, Arthur Bremer, dressed in red, white, and blue, drove to a shopping mall in Laurel, Maryland, and shot George Wallace twice in the stomach, permanently paralyzing him from the waist
1: down. Oh, that's got to just be the most painful thing.
0: In Bremer's apartment, they found porn. Wallace campaign stuff, and then just mountains and mountains of writings, diaries, poetry, just notebooks filled with writing. Mm-hmm. In fact, just a year later, one of his manuscripts titled An Assassin's Diary was published for the public.
1: Really? Yes that sounds like a risky move right. this is like
0: before laws Exploited you know it's like before the day. The it's, day. Day. it's like it's like you could just do stuff like because like, a lot of the things that people yeah, did in yeah, this story are like the reason why okay, some things aren't it. done today right
1: yeah you're gonna say that i already want to start talking about taxi driver because but i'm gonna wait for you to get to that but i'm just like this is i'm loving this this is a, this is great
0: so, uh-huh. but before Arthur Bremer's opus was published, his story had already inspired another young American man. So, we're starting a chain. Uh-huh. We started with Hinckley, yeah. now we're at Arthur Bremer, and yeah. now we're adding a, another young man. Mm-hmm. In the summer of 1972, a flat broke 26 year old man was at rock bottom in Los Angeles. Paul Schrader Mm. had left his wife for another woman and then broke up with her and dropped out of the American Film Institute with thousands of dollars in debt. Damn,
1: that's a rough one.
0: Broke, homeless, living in his car, drinking liquor straight out of the bottle. Paul survived on fast food and going to porn houses Uh until he just straight up gave himself a horrific ulcer and he had to be hospitalized. While he was in the hospital, Arthur Bremer shot George Wallace, and a hippie named Harry Chapin released a song called Taxi. It's Uh like seven minutes long. Don't recommend it.
1: (laughs) You really got to keep those hippies on a time limit, you know?
0: (laughs) Inspired by these events and this song... (laughs)
1: Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not. We're not taking that over. This is fun. Okay.
0: Inspired, the yeah. young man combined his failing life with who he imagined Arthur Bremer to be based on a couple of newspaper articles and stuff like that. Yeah. And a seven minute soft rock song. Yeah. And in 15 days, Paul Schrader wrote the screenplay for Martin Scorsese's award winning film taxi driver
1: really literally one of the very best screenplays in the history of american film
0: yeah and what a crazy trip through time
1: yeah yeah i mean damn yeah if you guys haven't seen that movie just go watch it right now like never listen to another podcast for as long as you live just watch that movie over and over again
0: and with that we'll move on to the next part of the story (laughs) yeah and now we return to john hinckley jr (laughs) okay when taxi driver was released in 1976 John Hinckley Jr. had dropped out of Texas Tech University and was adrift a failing songwriter in Los Angeles, California. And the movie Taxi Driver really resonated with him. Mm -hmm. Night after night, Hinckley sat in a dark LA theater compulsively watching the film. He watched it, by most accounts, like over 15 times. And this is when you had to like buy a ticket and sit in a movie theater. So it was a lot (laughs) more like... You know, you couldn't do it in a day, like watching all the Handmaid's Tales or something.
1: Right. Okay. I've already taken it back. Don't just rewatch Taxi Driver. (laughs) You said it! I did say it and I regret it immediately. But
0: this this is how compulsive this story is. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So he's watching this film over and over again. And John Hinckley Jr. finally found his life purpose. Something, something, Taxi Driver. (laughs) Like, <laughs> it wasn't really like, I'm going to live out the plot of Taxi Driver, right. right? It was rather creating some sort of Dadaist tapestry in which he was kind of like the lead character, Travis Bickle, and then destined to be forever coupled with then 13-year-old child actress jodie foster yeah so there wasn't it wasn't like exactly it but there's pieces you know? right
1: so far right now his uh whatever his religion is just going to the theater all the time every day and watching it and realizing this is his life
0: right, right. just not like very literally more like taxi driver ish
1: <laughs> yeah right
0: so for those of Us who don't know, Taxi Driver was American filmmaker Martin Scorsese's fifth feature film. So like Nick said, go watch it if you haven't. It's so great. You've got young Robert De Niro, Sybil Shepard, and young uh, Harvey Keitel. They star along with baby Jodie Foster, who plays a child sex worker. I'm just going to give you like a quick... Overview what the plot is because then you'll start to understand what's going on in the minds of all of these, I don't know, people. (laughs) (laughs) So, Taxi Driver is set in a grimy, rotting post Vietnam War New York City, and it follows Vietnam War veteran Travis Bickle, who's played by Robert De Niro. And basically, Travis Bickle is a taxi driver who works nights driving around all the late night scummy weirdos Mm -hmm. and also Mm -hmm. he's losing his mind (laughs) so he's becoming hyper fixated on the dirt and grime and corruption of the city right and he has a short fling with a campaign worker for a presidential candidate, right? So something, something president, uh-huh. played by a Sybil Shepard, which ends abruptly when he takes her on a date to a porno house. Bad move.
1: Right. It's sort of akin to like mosh pitting at the blood, sweat, and tears exactly. thing. Exactly. Except for way worse.
0: Yeah. Except but for way worse. She's
1: just like, you think this is a normal movie? And he's like, yeah, what's the big deal? And she Right, like but Right. But he's away. also
0: challenging her. There's a lot yeah. of, you know. Right, right. So Bickle... Freaks out when she says she rejects him, right? Yeah. And he sort of starts throwing paint at the wall to have a solution. Not
1: literally, no, but just yeah. like
0: you know, much like it, there's no, uh, there's not a lot of logic in this. Okay, right. yeah. so to get back at Sybil Shepherd or like get back together with Sybil Shepherd, he decides what he needs to do is start doing some Rocky style workouts, shave his hair into a mohawk. Start dressing in army fatigues and then also become obsessed with a child prostitute named Iris Steensman.
1: Can I add something? He also decides to really buy a lot of guns.
0: Yes. And 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 buy a ton of guns. And
1: stand in front of the mirror and like practice pulling out his guns.
0: Right. So this breakup with Civil Shepherd is the catalyst for him, like it and his transformation, which is some sort of vigilante. But there's no politics.
1: No, right. You know, and it, it,
0: it, there's nothing, that's the point. It's like right. there's nothing about it, right? It's
1: basically just like the guy Bremer.
0: Exactly. So, in a last ditch effort at the end of all of this gun buying and mohawk mm-hmm. shaving to win Sybil Shepard's heart, Travis Bickle tries to kill Sybil Shepard's presidential candidate, the guy she's working for. <laughs> yeah. So that'll put he, her over. Yeah. <laughs> so he biffs that super hard and he gets chased away from this campaign rally by Secret Service yeah. without like even getting the gun out of his pocket. Right. right. So after all of this buildup, yeah. he runs away way frustrated he drives around New York City he spots Jodie Foster and realizes at that point no 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 my job in life and what I've worked towards is to rescue this girl right so Bickle goes in to the brothel where Jodie Foster is kept guns blazing kills everyone except Jodie and then collapses from his multiple gunshot wounds right so after he comes to in the hospital he realizes he's kind of been named a hero for rescuing Jody so instead of being like jailed for his unhinged vigilanteism, yeah he's basically celebrated as like a super great guy right so he recovers he's healthy he goes back to driving his little taxi cab but then at the end of the movie a little look in the rear viewer at the end is like no dude I'm still crazy <laughs>
1: Pickle to the core. Right.
0: So that's like this movie that John Hinckley Jr. is becoming immersed in.
1: I loved hearing you say that. The whole recap of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That was great.
0: So just like as a little side note, Uh this was a huge gig for Jodie Foster By the age of 13, she had already had a solid career, primarily in television. Mm -hmm. And her momager, Evelyn, a.k.a. Brandy, that's how she was known, was the publicist for Arthur O. Jacobs, who was the producer for Planet of the Apes, the whole series, and Uh the old school Dr. Doolittle. So she was like a publisher for a big producer. Right, a
1: publicist. Thank you. Right. So Jody <laughs> grew up in the business. Exactly. Okay.
0: Brandy spotted Jody's star really early, and she quickly dropped her Planet of the Apes sky for her brilliant daughter, mm-hmm. taking on, managing her career, and she actually managed her career up through her second best actress win for Silence of the Lambs in the early 90s. Man.
1: What was her first best actress win?
0: Uh, it was something... I don't remember the name of it. That's but it, fine. It was not Taxi Driver.
1: Okay. She's great in Taxi Driver.
0: So in the early 1970s, when, her, when Jodie Foster was still a preteen, Brandy wanted to pivot Jodie out of kids' movies and kids' TV and into... Movies with an adult audience. Well, that was...
1: She really chose a good one for that. I there know. Was no, she was like, no kid... Movie. What's the, I can't think of more of an opposite thing than a kid's movie. Well, in
0: 1974, <laughs> yeah. Ma- Mom Brandy scored Jody a bit part uh-huh. in Scorsese's film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Oh, God, She's that a, movie's good. It's so good. She was a street kid yeah. in that movie, and that was actually mm. her first um, like adult movie. You know, movie yeah,
1: role. I br- I probably knew that, but I don't remember her in that movie. Damn it, it was movie a was little good. tiny part. God, um, so great. Then in
0: 1976, Jodie Foster had a star-making turn as Iris Steensman in Taxi Driver. Yeah, the film went on to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Con,
1: ah, whatever. Con's the yeah. big French film festival, yeah.
0: And earned Jodie her first nomination for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. She's a little bitty babe, yeah. On top of all of that, mm-hmm. Jodie Foster was also like a child genius. She graduated valedictorian at the prestigious high school, say Francais de Los Angeles, and she delivered her valedictorian graduation address fully in French. She's fully fluent and then after that she left uh la to go to yale university
1: man how come some people just are that how come she's jody that's insane She's
0: literally brilliant like she's she's brilliant right very cool that's insane and she's also this incredible writer i read uh an article she wrote for esquire when Uh she was like 19 yeah, I couldn't write anything like that. It's like <laughs> blah, 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 blah. metaphor. Her uh, her major was in literature. And I yeah. think her thesis was on Toni Morrison.
1: Well, also just, I don't know for what we're saying exactly, but also go watch Silence of the Lambs. That is really, truly one of the best movies also. And she is legitimately outrageously brilliant in it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyways.
0: Okay. So before all that, yeah. <laughs> back in 1976, Jodie Foster was the 13-year-old actress at the center of John Hinckley's world. Yeah, Texas Tech had been somewhat of a disaster for John Hinckley. While the rest of his family was thriving in Colorado, John Jr. was aimless. He started out as a business administration major, but soon felt that funky 1970s pole to California. Uh, He'd been developing an obsession with John Lennon, Mm -hmm. and despite having no legitimate musical training or really significant talent, around 1976, John Jr. dropped out of college to pursue a career in songwriting in Los Angeles. Although his family was getting a little nervous about John Jr., there was still a glimmer of hope. Hinckley's brother Scott testified at John Jr.'s 1982 trial that when John Jr. started traveling back and forth to LA trying to be a rock star, they believed there might be a chance that he could be, quote, the next Barry Manilow.
1: <laughs> really?
0: Dad was nervous. Parents hated it, but they were like, yeah. well, is he going to do it? You know? I mean,
1: but Barry Manilow uh, can sing. That's like, did he have. Like, you can't be the next Barry Manilow if, like, he's not a good singer.
0: Well, Scott said that in court, and his brother put his hand over his eyes like he was hella embarrassed. That's what the court reporter said.
1: <laughs> because <laughs> Barry Manilow was too nerdy for him or yeah, something? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I have another weird question. Well, it's not weird, but I just don't know if you know the answer. When was John Lennon assassinated?
0: Oh, we'll get there, baby. Oh, okay.
1: All right. But he's still alive during this obsession with him, is my point. Yeah. Okay.
0: So... John inkley Jr.'s mm. family's nervous. But meanwhile, John Jr.'s out in Hollywood, binge-watching Taxi Driver and developing into a solid weirdo. Rather than playing guitar or, you know, writing songs, John Jr. spent his days mostly developing his Travis Bickle persona. Mm. So he shaved his head, started dressing in army fatigues, he started keeping a journal, drinking peach brandy in a bottle in his car, and then just like getting into guns Uh he wrote letters to his parents about his imaginary girlfriend that he'd patterned after sybil shepherd's taxi driver character um he named this girl lynn collins but eventually hollywood and the travis bickle cosplay thing kind of ran its course Mm -hmm. so to his parents relief, in 1977 john jr returned to texas tech Coincidentally, the same year his dad became a born-again Christian. He prayed for it. and his son went back to college. <laughs> Drop music. <laughs> That's my thought but okay. But John Jr, uh-huh. right? He was already marching to the beat of his own drum. This return to college wasn't a, the signal of normalcy his parents had been praying for. John Jr. was almost immediately off to court some Nazis in Chicago. So in early 1978, John Jr., who's supposed to be in college, traveled to the Chicago headquarters of the National Socialist Party of America, which is an offshoot of the American Nazi Party. And he became a card-carrying member. Then-president-elect of the organization, Michael C. Allen, told the New York Times in 1981 that John Jr. was too out there for the organization. Like, once uh, he had a security role, they call them stormtroopers at a uh-huh. rally, uh-huh. and people were throwing snowballs at the parade, and John Jr. just had a complete meltdown. He uh-huh. was trying to get everyone to attack the counter-protesters, and was like, we need violence, da 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 It got to the point where Alan decided, quote, it seemed clear if we were ever going to let him participate in other protests, we'd have to keep him in safer demonstrations or cut him loose.
1: Okay, so he's too violent for the Nazis. Right.
0: The next year, the organization denied a renewal of John Jr.'s membership to the neo-Nazis because he, quote, kept talking about going out and shooting people and blowing things up, unquote.
1: So is he uh, otherwise spouting like racist things or did he just think those guys kind of look like me and they seem to want to like do something violent, I'll go hang out with them.
0: I'm telling you, man. Yeah. I think it's just a lot of what is going on up there? I'm uh-huh. not sure a yeah. lot of it is very um well thought out. I read I read, to be honest, uh-huh. like a thousand articles for this. Thing. <laughs> I uh-huh. just like read so I didn't really go with the book. I kind of just read a bunch of the New York Times coverage of this. Sure, and stuff. sure. And uh one thing that I read kind of said because of the way he grew up in Texas, he just like was only around white people forever. Uh-huh. So maybe that was just a part of it. It's like, he actually didn't have a lot of exposure to different cultures, but yeah.
1: And Travis Bickle, he's, is got, a, he's a racist character. Yeah. I mean, he is he's a racist. racist.
0: And actually the screenwriter, Paul Schrader wrote, originally he had made Bickle more racist in the screenplay and they yeah. ended up changing it because yeah. they were just like, this is terrible. <laughs> well,
1: the Harvey Keitel character was supposed to be black originally.
0: Yeah, all of the people in the brothel were supposed to be black. So yeah. he was the only people that Travis Bickle, the character killed in the movie, yeah, was gonna be just like a room full of black people. And they're like, that <laughs> seems like maybe a <laughs>
1: bad choice. Well, they, were, I read an interview where he was like, yeah. So, you know, cause he was, I guess, just like, you know in the hospital and just a drunk living in his car whatever he's like he went to go talk to some whatever studio people and you know the people that are going to finance finance it and they're like yeah you can't make this if you do this there will be riots in the movie theater
0: yeah i mean it's a it's just like a terrible like i think that the angle was like paul schrader isn't racist right. but travis bickle sure is right and then they were like nobody's gonna get that you know that right,
1: <laughs> right. you're just gonna make this movie and they're gonna be like all of you are racist <laughs> yeah right well martin scorsese puts himself in the movie as a very racist character anyways in taxi driver yeah no
0: oh, i don't even remember
1: that oh it's bad
0: so anyway back to our main character mm-hmm. john Hinckley jr between 1977 and 1980 he kind of did this Nazi thing and floated around the country, sometimes going to class and mostly just developing his obsession with Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. By 1980, John Jr.'s attempt at normie life had run its course. Now an English major, John was living alone in a squalid one bedroom apartment in Lubbock, Texas, pretty much flunking out of college. Mm. John Jr.'s landlord, Mr. Swafford, told the New York Times in 1981 that one day he entered the apartment to fix a drain. As per usual, John Jr. didn't say a word to Swafford and just stared blankly back when Swafford greeted him. This was something that uh, Bremer did too. Mm. People were like, "He's fine, but if you say hi, he'll just blank you. Yeah, like he won't say anything back. Right. According to Swafford, the apartment was filled. All over the floor with dozens and dozens of empty ice cream cartons and McDonald's trash. Uh, Other than that, the apartment was actually empty except for a guitar and a TV. But, so now we know kind of how he was living. Right. But what his landlord didn't know was that he was standing in John Jr.'s cocoon. He was undergoing a transformation and would soon be spreading his wild ass wings. (laughs) (laughs) In the summer of 1980, Hinkley had dropped out of Texas Tech altogether, but he had a new plan that gave his parents a little hope. John Jr. had decided he wanted to study writing at Yale University, and he had signed up for fall classes. Jack and Joanne gave their son a few thousand dollars for school, and September 1980, John Jr. headed to Connecticut to stalk Jody Foster. Oh,
1: my God. I was going to say, there's no way he got into Yale.
0: I think you could sign up for a class, uh-huh. but you I don't think he was enrolled in the full program. The way that the phrasing was, was like, Uh I think they still do that where you can audit or do something. How
1: fun would that be? We should do that.
0: Yeah, we need some money, man.
1: Yeah, let's do one of these GoFundMe things, you know?
0: (laughs) Hinkley actually had registered for a writing class at Yale because he read in People magazine that she was a student there. Mm. Um, But this wasn't the romantic slam dunk you might think it was. Hinkley mostly just put relatively unhinged handwritten notes in Jodie Foster's school mailbox and slipped them under her dorm room
1: door. Oh, whoa. I guess I never realized that he actually got close to her. I actually don't know anything about this. He used to
0: hang out in her dorm. It's the 70s. You can kind of do anything. It's crazy. And she was really particular, like, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: wanted to be normal right in a 1982 article Jodie Foster wrote for Esquire that one I was talking about that's Mm -hmm. so eloquent and beautiful uh it was titled why me Mm -hmm. and Jodie wrote that basically she was just a really nervous freshman who had the relatively controlled childhood of a kid who'd been working professionally since she was at the age of three right Uh so she was nervous about leaving home nervous about how she'd fit in in an ivy league and mainly just wanting to be seen as normal and liked. And so that meant no extra security. She mm-hmm. lived in the dorm. She didn't want a private room or anything like that. And she was just like, I'm going to be here. Right. But that also meant, you know, <sighs> right. freaky people can come over there,
1: slip notes under her door. This is one of those Kardashian moments. You know, when you just want to tell Chloe, like, oh, really, Jodie Foster, you want to be a regular freshman? How about you don't write articles for Esquire? How about you just don't do that part? To Maybe be fair, that would help.
0: No, to be fair, uh-huh. she wrote this in 1982. Yeah. And it was, that's her sophomore year. Okay. And basically what she says is like, I tried. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of flaws in, in what I tried to do. I didn't know and, and I've never tried to do it. But the gist of it was that she got put through the ringer by everyone. Like mm-hmm. her, we'll talk about a little bit of this, but it's just like the way she talked about it was, she did this play for Yale and she didn't really want to do it, but her friend begged her to do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the director who's kind of not, an, a, not a famous person mm-hmm. was like selling stories to People Magazine about how oh, he had helped yeah. her because she had some bad, you know, acting traits from being in movies oh, and she gross. needed to do a first film. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, you know, and I was trying to just do it and be like, I'll, I'll just do a play. Yeah. And then people were being gross about it. And then somebody sold like sold a story about how she was on campus Uh and she was like, Oh, I was thinking I was blending in and being normal. Really. I was being judged the entire time. Mm -hmm. And then people are selling these stories, you know, like even when things were at the height of danger for her, like everyone knew it and she requested no photography happen at the play that she was performing in. Mm the director snuck in a photographer because her being in that play makes him famous. Right. So the yeah. whole time she's in this dramatic play, she can hear shutters mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she doesn't know whos who it is, you know? Right. So like she knows and that's what is insane is she's, she really is really brilliant. She's mm-hmm. like 19 and mm-hmm. she's that introspective. I think she's, I think it's a cool article. Sure. A second, second to read it. But anyway. Okay. Suffice it to say, the Hinckley letters were decidedly a huge bummer. Mm-hmm. So as September turned to October, just a month, John Jr. could tell the stocking Jodie Foster thing wasn't working too well. So basically the short version is he decided to pack up and move home to live a quiet life. Just kidding! Hinckley realized that if the letters weren't going to get him anywhere with Jody, the next logical step was to kill President Jimmy Carter. Oh, my God. So it's kind of like Taxi Driver, right? There's a president, an assassination, and Jody Foster. But in Hinckley's world, all these things were just sort of thrown into a blender and mashed together. So instead of rescuing Jody Foster he was terrorizing her Mm -hmm. by proving himself worthy of her love by murdering the president.
1: Gotcha. Playing
0: a game of 4D chess. (laughs) (laughs) So around early October, Hinckley used his Yale tuition money to stalk Jimmy Carter and his reelection campaign around the country. He got really close to Carter a few times, but he just couldn't, work himself up enough to pull the trigger mm-hmm. so there Hinckley was kind of stuck in limbo too scared to pull the trigger but drawn to president carter he bounced around going to campaign rallies uh, at one point trying to hook up with the nazis again who gave him the cold shoulder they were like nobody sorry not today on october 9th 1980 Hinkley had followed President Carter to Tennessee and was in the Nashville International Airport and was preparing to board an American Airlines flight to New York City, patiently waiting for his carry-on luggage, stuffed with guns to finish running through the airport x-ray machines. And then Hinkley was surprised to be arrested. Turns out bringing three handguns and a pile of loose ammunition in his carry-on luggage was a bad and illegal move. And Hinckley was arrested and booked into jail. After paying a $50 fine, he was released 30 minutes later. Damn. Things have changed. But the problem now was he had no guns. So four days later, Hinckley made his way to Dallas to Rocky's Pawn Shop which is about a mile away from where former President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated in 1963. And there, John Hinckley Jr. bought two 22 revolvers, one of which he eventually used to shoot U.S. President Ronald Reagan. After his arrest, John Jr. headed back to his pretty disappointed parents in Colorado. And there they put John under the care of a local psychiatrist who unfortunately didn't catch any of the, I'm going to kill the president and become one with Jodie Foster stuff. (laughs) In fact, while both his brother and sister, John Jr.'s brother and sister thought John Jr. should be institutionalized, his psychiatrist, Dr. John Hopper completely disagreed. Mm -hmm. He saw John as a depressed young man who thought of himself as like the least successful Hankley. He dropped out of college, failed as a songwriter and At this point, he was the only Hinckley kid who hadn't received his share of inheritance, Mm -hmm. which we're talking a lot of money.
1: Right, yeah, this is like rich Dallas gas money.
0: Right, and he doesn't have his hands on any of it.
1: Do you think that he gamed the psychiatrist? Was that a manipulation on John's part, or did the...
0: It sounds like he just didn't say anything about what he was really thinking. So Mm -hmm. he knew that he had an obsession with Jodie Foster, Mm -hmm. but like the planning and stuff... He didn't know. Mm-hmm. So, so Dr. John Hopper saw Hankley Jr. from October 1980 to February 1981 for about four months, during which time John Jr. stalked two different presidents, bought a bunch of guns, and went to target practice regularly, and sent a letter to the FBI threatening to kidnap Jodie Foster. Damn. Um... At Hinckley's 1982 trial, Dr. Hopper testified he was completely unaware of these Hinckley escapades at the time. He
1: just kept it a secret, which is a manipulation to an extent. Okay. I mean, I
0: don't think it's that deep of a manipulation. Right. He's just like, well, I'm not going to tell him about the president.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. Better keep <laughs> this, this whole Kidnap Foster thing to myself.
0: <laughs> I feel like a six-year-old would be like, don't, tell not <laughs> I stole the candy. Okay. All right, so during the four-month period of treatment dr hopper more or less told jack and joanne Hinckley that their son was just depressed and needed more independence mm-hmm. he suggested developing a plan to get john jr completely out of the family home disconnected from family money and supporting himself by march 30th 1981 meanwhile like we said between psychiatric appointments in Colorado, Hinckley continued to fly around the country stalking newly elected President Ronald Reagan in Washington, D.C., then over to New Haven, Connecticut to stalk Jodie Foster a little bit. Then finally, he landed in New York City for New Year's Eve, 1980. One of his idols, like we talked about before, was John Lennon, mm-hmm. had been assassinated just a few weeks earlier on December 8th, 1980, in mm. Manhattan. And while he was in the hotel in New York City, he recorded this monologue. So I'll just read it to you so you get a sense of where he's at. Okay. John Lennon is dead. The world is over. Forget it. It's just going to be insanity if I even make it through the first few days. I still regret having to go on with 1981. I don't know why people want to live. John Lennon is dead. I still think... I still think about Jodi all the time. That's all I think about, really. That and John Lennon's death. They're sort of binded together. I hate New Haven with a mortal passion. I've been up there many times, not stalking her, really, but just looking after her. I was going to take her away for a while there, but I don't know. I'm so sick, I can't even do that. It'll be total suicide city. I mean, I couldn't care less. Jodi is the only thing that matters now. Anything I might do in 1981 would be solely for Jodie Foster's sake. My obsession is Jodie Foster. I've got to find her and talk to her some way in person or something. That's all I want her to know is that I love her. I don't want to hurt her. I think I'd rather just see her not not on earth than being with other guys. I wouldn't want to stay here on earth without her. Hmm. So it takes a few twists and turns. And yeah. It makes you very worried for Jodie Foster at that point. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's really, that's very thick in the mud of it all.
0: Yeah. So in early March, John Jr. contacted his parents panicked, saying he was out of money and stranded in New York City and threatening that his parents would never see him again if they didn't fly him home that very second. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hopper, the psychiatrist, told the Hinckleys to cool their jets and let John Jr. figure it out himself, and they did for one day. Then they came to his demands. (laughs) John Hinckley Jr. returned home to Colorado for the last time on March 7, 1981. Jack Hinckley met his younger son at the airport, handed him $200, and then banned John Jr. from the family home. John took the money and got a motel room in Denver. Two weeks later, John Jr. sent Dr. Hopper a card in the mail that simply read, thanks for recommending that I starve in NYC. (laughs) Pretty salty.
1: Blaming his psychiatrist at this point.
0: Although he'd been cut off from his father, Joanne continued to visit her son. And on March 25th, 1981, she drove John Jr. to the Stapleton Airport in Denver in complete silence. John Jr., Meandered around some more. He went back to Hollywood, I believe. Some of this stuff is just like he's all he really just traveled all over the country all the time. Yeah,
1: I guess it used to be kind of cheap and he's getting fed money, I guess. Somehow it's right. like
0: buses and planes. And yeah. just kind of all over the place. Yeah. He finally ends up at the Central Park Hotel in Washington, D.C., On the drizzly morning of March 30th, 1981, the official day he was slated to be kicked out of the family home, John Hinckley Jr. went to McDonald's. He had been planning to head over to New Haven to give Jodie Foster a little stocking, but on his way back from breakfast, he picked up a copy of the Washington Star with Ronald Reagan's public schedule listed. President Reagan was slated to speak at the Washington Hilton in D.C. in just a couple hours. And today seemed like a good day to prove his worthiness to Jodie Foster. Mm. Hinckley went back to the hotel, showered, took a Valium, loaded his twenty two with exploding bullets, and wrote Jodie Foster a letter. Dear Jody, there is a definite possibility that I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. It is for this very reason that I am writing you this letter now. As you well know, by now, I love you very much. Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. Besides my shyness, I honestly did not wish to bother you with my constant presence. I know the many messages left at your door and in your mailbox were a nuisance, but I felt that it was the most painless way for me to express my love to you. I feel very good about the fact that you at least know my name and know how I feel about you. And by hanging around your dormitory, I've come to realize that I'm a topic of more than a little conversation, however full of ridicule it may be. At least you know that I'll always love you. Jody. I would abandon the idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand, in no uncertain terms, that I'm doing this all for your sake. By sacrificing my freedom and possibly my life, I hope to change your mind about me. This letter is being written only an hour before I leave the Hilton Hotel. Jody. I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historical deed to gain your respect and love. I love you forever, John Hinckley.
1: There are weird flashes of self-awareness with this guy. Like even in that other recording that you read from... Even him saying like, I stalk her, I'm obsessed with her, to me, shows some awareness that other aspects of his life make me, and other aspects of what he's saying make me believe that he might not even see it as stalking or an obsession.
0: Well, just keep that in your mind. Yeah. It is an interesting thing when we come to the trial about like how self-aware he was. Sure, sure, sure. So President Ronald Reagan was spending his lunch on March 30th, 1981, giving a speech for the major labor union AFL-CIO at the Washington Hilton. This Hilton was considered or this hotel was considered the safest venue in DC at the time. It had some special secret president corridor and mm-hmm, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And maybe because of that or maybe just randomly, security was a little loose that day. Reagan normally wore a bulletproof vest, but decided to go vestless, as did his secret service detail. There was supposed to be a fairly thorough weapon screening for the crowd gathered outside the hotel, but that was kind of loosey-goosey as well, so Hmm. there was a lot of kind of softness happening.
1: Yeah, someone's losing their job.
0: Not really, actually. Hmm. At 2.27 p.m., Reagan exited the hotel, John Hinckley Jr. shot at the president six times with exploding bullets, missing all six shots. Yeah. What happened next went down in about three seconds, okay. maybe a little less. Okay. I've, I've watched the video a few times. Okay. The first round hit White House press secretary James Brady in the head. Oh, no. The second round hit D.C. police officer Thomas Delhante ah. in the back of the neck, ah. who then collapsed on top of Brady. Uh-huh. And then at this point, Alfred Antonucci and Frank McNamara, who are both labor officials from Ohio and were kind of in town for events and stuff, yeah. started punching Hinckley in the head. Okay. while Special Agent Jerry Parr grabbed Reagan and dove with him into the back of the waiting presidential limo. The third round went wild, just went out in the crowd somewhere. Yeah. Not knowing where those shots were coming from, Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy starfished out, spreading his arms and legs to block Reagan in the limo. The fourth round hit McCarthy in the torso. Uh. The fifth round hit the bulletproof uh, window of the limo just as Reagan and Agent Parr dove behind it. And the sixth round ricocheted off the limo, through a crack in the door, and into Reagan's left armpit.
1: Whoa. Collapsing
0: his lung and stopping about an inch from his heart. Oh, my God. So... Hinckley was tackled and punched repeatedly in the head. Secret service agents had to punch civilians to get them to stop punching Hinckley. And then at the end, this is just a video. I know it's like horrific, but at the end, this agent named Robert Wanko topped off this entire moment by just straight up pulling out a submachine gun Uh and just being like, everybody stop (laughs) and cover the presidential limo as it drove away. Uh John Hinckley Jr. was arrested. He had photos of Jodie Foster. He had that letter to Jodie on his person. And then police later found a copy of Arthur Bremer's diary of an assassin in his stuff.
1: Was anyone killed? No. Everyone survived. People in the back of the neck. Boy, and let and- me tell the story. Oh.
0: Jesus Christ. So back in the limo, no one could see any blood on Reagan. It was a little twenty-two bullet. Mm. He was complaining about having some chest pain. So Agent Parr assumed he had cracked a rib mm-hmm. until Reagan began coughing up blood. Ooh. So, they rerouted the limo from the White House to the nearest hospital, George Washington University Hospital. So, something got lost in translation. And when they arrived there, no one was waiting. There's no stretcher, there's just a, a crowd of people. Yeah. So, Ronald Reagan, whose code name was Rawhide, opted not to alarm the crowd outside the hospital, instead, walking casually in, smiling and waving. Once he was past the doors, Reagan collapsed telling doctors he was having trouble breathing. Mm. It actually took a while to figure out what the issue was. No one had seen the bullet hole, so they were going with cracked rib, punctured a lung, and then that experience gave him a heart attack.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: And there was all kinds of other chaos. Doctors cut off Reagan's super expensive suit off his body because that's what you do when you're in the ER, but he was mad about that. (laughs) Reagan was pissed. He complained about (laughs) it. No one
1: cuts a suit off a rawhide. (laughs)
0: Uh, And the suit had his wallet in it Uh that contained a card with the nuclear launch codes. So the FBI and the military guys with the nuclear football were fighting for custody over this suit in the hospital lobby while 70-year-old Ronald Reagan is going into
1: shock. Jesus.
0: Then, thankfully at some point, someone in triage caught the little twenty-two caliber bullet room in Reagan's side. Uh And actually... Just a little fun fact, the FBI had the nuclear launch codes for two whole days before that whole thing got resolved. They're like, give us the codes. They're like, no. (laughs) 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 So when he was being rolled into surgery, the president told his wife, First Lady Nancy Reagan, quote, honey. I Forgot to Duck, which is what boxer Jack Dempsey said to his wife after losing the heavyweight title to Gene Tunney.
1: Okay, so he's cracking funnies.
0: And then, while he was intubated, he scribbled a note to a nurse saying, all in all, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. And that's a joke comedian W.C. Fields used to say to rag on Philadelphia. Like, this is so bad, I'd rather be in Philly. (laughs) And then while he was losing half his blood volume in the operating room and conscious because he had Uh to go straight in, Reagan took off his oxygen mask to say, I hope you are all Republican. (laughs) So Ronald Reagan, he's got jokes. (laughs) Reagan came out of the surgery in great shape. But it wasn't until two days later that doctors and officials realized they were dealing with exploding bullets. The bullets were designed to explode on impact, but they could explode at any time. So it turned out the only bullet that actually exploded was the one that hit press secretary James Brady, but the medical team working on getting the bullet out of Thomas Delhanty's neck, yeah. they weren't alerted to the exploding bullets until right before the surgery. And the surgeons performed the operation wearing bulletproof vests. Whoa. When John Hinckley Jr. shot Ronald Reagan, Jodie Foster was doing a play at Yale called Getting Out. She played a prostitute who killed her pimp. So kind of really? Like, yeah, which is like she's a freshman in college. You know, she doesn't. She just made this choice. Right. It's the opposite of taxi driver.
1: Not really. It's sort of the opposite. <laughs> They're like trying to pigeonhole her already. I mean, Anyways. she
0: regretted it. Yeah. So
1: we've all done a play in college. We regret.
0: Oh, I've done so many plays.
1: <laughs> I've never done a play. I haven't <laughs> regretted.
0: <laughs> so she's doing the play. Uh, when Hinkley shoots Reagan. And at this point, she'd been reporting these notes to the dean. So like the FBI called her within an hour of the uh-huh. shooting to let her know what happened. And six days later, Jody, she just kept trucking. She performed her final weekend of the show surrounded by beefed up security. And then at intermission in her last weekend, someone found a note that was pinned up on the in the lobby that basically said by the time the show is over, Jodie Foster will be dead. Jesus. So they didn't find out who wrote that. Yeah. And then a couple days later, after the show closed, another handwritten death threat was slipped under Jodie Foster's dorm room door. And this is after Hinkley's in jail.
1: Right. So it's like imposters or people pranking her or whatever.
0: The letter read in part... Quote, why do you seek to humiliate us? Hinkley was only the beginning. Our dual realities merged into a single vision. You will be getting out, because that's the name of her play, very shortly. Damn it. You know who I am? You know I am the one doing all these killings? And then, after the letter was delivered that same day, someone called a bomb threat into Welsh Hall. That's the, the dorm where Jodie mm-hmm. Foster lived. That ended up to be, like, fake, but they had to evacuate the whole dorm. Sure. The next day, on April 8th, 1981, 22-year-old Edward Michael Richardson was arrested in New York City while carrying a loaded handgun. He had taken the bus from New Haven to New York City after slipping the death threat under Jodie Foster's door. Oh. So a maid at the New Haven Hotel where Richardson had been staying found letters he had written pledging to track down Ronald Reagan and finish what Hinkley had started. He had photos of Reagan with his face crossed out and one of the notes addressed quote to the fascist powers that one read in part I depart now for Washington DC to bring to the completion Hinckley's reality Ronald Reagan will be shot to death and this country turned to the left Um, Hmm. so the authorities basically used the letters and I think the bomb threat to track Richardson down to a hotel in Manhattan Mm -hmm. and after his arrest Richardson admitted to telephoning in the bomb threat and he had also said he attended one of Jodie Foster's performances of getting out the weekend after Reagan was shot. He was going to kill her and had a loaded gun and after he saw her perform he decided she was just too pretty to kill so he didn't do it.
1: I don't know if this is worth mentioning or not. I know we've just spoiler alerted all of Taxi Driver but Travis Bickle is not sexually attracted or anything to the, the Jody foster, foster character yeah, it's he doesn't almost doesn't even care about her he just sees this pimp exploiting her and wants to kill
0: it's a rescue mission
1: it has not like he, i mean it's
0: not even that he just wants to kill
1: people and he wants a reason yeah right
0: <laughs> yeah so this is a like i said it's not taxi driver right yeah it's no, taxi driver adjacent
1: no. right way. right
0: So Secret Service actually found there were no links whatsoever between Richardson and John Hinckley Jr. Richardson said his link to Hinckley is, quote, cosmic only. Mm. Uh, Richardson spent a year in prison and was released in
1: 1982.
0: That's it? Yep. (laughs) So when all was said and done, Ronald Reagan fully recovered Tim McCarthy, the agent who kind of starfished out and blocked mm-hmm. the president with his body, he was only at that lunch that day because he lost a coin toss mm. and he wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest.
1: He survived.
0: Well, although he had several injuries, McCarthy was actually the first man to be discharged and he made a full recovery. Thomas DeLahanty, who was the guy who got shot in the neck, mm. he recovered from neck surgery but had permanent nerve damage and had to retire due to disability. Damn. And then press secretary Brady survived, but he was permanently disabled, unable to speak clearly with permanent partial paralysis that required the use of a wheelchair. Oh, no. James Brady remained press secretary entitled for both of the Reagan administration terms. So Mm. from 1981 to 1989, um, he was just listed as being on a leave of absence, but Mm -hmm. he has the title for that that entire eight years.
1: Mm. Is that like a sign of loyalty from Reagan probably? Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
0: Or a sign of honor. Right,
1: right. I'm just acting like the exploding bullet things is normal. Also, what it, like, I don't even know that's a, I didn't I, I don't even know what that is. They're they get, like
0: little 22 bullets, and they're like plated with a certain thing. And I don't really get how they wouldn't they would explode after I impact. Guess if, I don't understand that part, but that's what
1: that'd be crazy if they would just explode at any time. Like you just buy them.
0: Well, I mean, they did do the surgery and bulletproof vest, so I don't know. I, they're not mechanical, but maybe they have something like you know some sort of chemical reaction so if you're taking it out and you squeeze it too hard it could pop
1: that's crazy we just yeah i don't know
0: (laughs) i don't know bullets man anyway James Brady actually became a gun control advocate after this whole thing went down. And he was the catalyst for the Brady Handgun Violence Protection Act, which Mm. I think a lot of people refer to as the Brady Act, Mm -hmm. um, which broadly speaking, mandated the five day waiting periods and background checks for firearm purchases that we use today.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: And finally, Labor leader Alfred Antonucci, who punched Hinckley in the head, told the press, quote, any man wearing a pair of pants and calls himself a man would have automatically done the same thing. <laughs>
1: Good old Italian labor leader hes <laughs> punching fools in the head all the he's, time. He was
0: punching people. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> June 21st, 1982, John Hinckley Jr. was found not guilty by a reason of insanity mm-hmm. on all counts yeah. and committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. So like you said, yeah. there was a lot of controversy behind this. The verdict in John Hinckley's trial was just really, really, really unpopular with the public. Yeah. And who's to say, I mean, he does seem like he was really mentally ill. Who's to say what? But the way of proving uh-huh. sort of like uh, not guilty by reason of insanity used to be a lot easier
1: uh-huh.
0: because this unpopular verdict led to the 1984 Insanity Defense Reform Act, which through a number of provisions made it really significantly harder for defendants to be deemed not guilty by reason of insanity. It's it's kind of complicated, I won't go into the whole thing, but one of the provisions essentially shifted the burden of proof from the prosecution to the defense in this Way So Mm -hmm. I think that basically meant that in Hinckley's trial, it was left to the prosecution to prove Hinckley wasn't insane by any reasonable doubt. Right. Mm -hmm. And the 1984 Insanity Defense Reform Act made it so that the defense now had to prove that the client was insane, which is kind of harder to accomplish, especially under the newer rules.
1: Right, right, right
0: anyway Hinckley spent 1982 to 2016 at saint elizabeth's where he exchanged letters with serial killer ted bundy at times collected material on jodie foster and wrote music he wrote an article for Penthouse in the 80s that I couldn't get without paying for it. So people referenced it, but I couldn't get it. Okay. And I didn't want to pay for it. But <laughs> I guess he talked about how he liked the drugs that he got in the psych ward or something. But he wrote an article for Penthouse.
1: That's kind of shady of Penthouse, I feel like. That's
0: what I'm saying. It's like, uh-huh. it's, the, it's the wild times, man. It's, it's not like, that
1: wild. I feel like <laughs> that's pretty.
0: That's the 80s <laughs> is like 40 years ago.
1: Ah, uh, Damn. I still think they knew better. People had morals in the 80s. I'm not saying
0: that they didn't know better. I'm just saying there weren't as many rules like stopping people from doing that. And, you know, he got uh, we'll keep going with this. Uh John Hinckley Jr. was first released fully into his parents care in 2016. And then in June of this year, John Jr. was fully released from his sentence with no restrictions. He has a healthy YouTube Channel where mm-hmm. he mostly covers acoustic folk songs um, with a few originals thrown in. When you
1: say healthy YouTube, does that mean he uploads regularly? He has yeah. a lot of views? What does that mean?
0: I mean, I don't know what that means. He has like 30,000 subscribers. And That's his last a lot. Week, his last video was like last week.
1: Yeah, he's crushing us in YouTube. Hey, also, by the way, we're on YouTube. No, you- <laughs> <laughs> Let
0: me finish my stupid okay. story. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Yeah. John Jr. is selling t-shirts and paintings through Twitter. Uh, A tweet from October 2nd reads, I need a proper manager, someone with connections and passion. If you fit the bill, send email to, I'm not doxing him, but it's a Yahoo account. Nice. (sighs) And then another tweet reads, I can't find a brave music venue, but I still have an album on vinyl coming out by the end of the year. Thank goodness for Asbestos Records. So I did read that he's had all of these concerts lined up and they just keep getting canceled because uh-huh. people are like, this guy's an asshole. Yeah. Um,
1: but Asbestos Records, they're, they're putting, right, putting out put a, a vinyl.
0: They're putting out a vinyl mm-hmm. EP for uh-huh. him, like a limited release thing, apparently. Okay. He did also say like in one of his YouTube videos that le- something about him starting a new record label, the name that he picked was already a record label in, I think in Europe somewhere. Uh-huh. So that was not a great choice.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, and that also doesn't seem to be happening. I think okay. at some point he's like, I'm doing this and then yeah. there's nothing about it.
1: Yeah. I'm starting a new record label. Warner brothers <laughs> records.
0: <laughs> and Jodie Foster is doing pretty good these days. The end. Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was great. (laughs) What if his new album comes out and it just sounds exactly like Barry Manilow?
0: Ah, that'd be funny. It's more like um, it it sounds like I don't know, like not distinct Bob Dylan songs. Like it's just like folk music Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with somebody who knows five chords and is kind of like really into repeating things. Okay. Well, just for the record. love and peace, love and peace. I like love and peace. I mean, it's like that.
1: Yeah. Mr. Hinckley, we know you're alive and on the internet. I
0: know. I'm so
1: mad. man. And we we like your music. We think you're good. Hey, and just for the record, Mr. Hinckley.
0: Don't say anything. You can't be talking to people like-
1: (laughs) I'm just saying he's doing better- on the internet than we are so you are
0: starting a parasocial relationship no i'm not him. i'm
1: not i'm not you have to stop i'm not doing anything okay we're ending the episode miro that was, a, that was
0: amazing <laughs> Our main sources for this episode were literally a billion news articles. If you're curious, I'll send you a list. I have it all notated. There is this one guy, Douglas O. Linder. He's a professor of law at the University of Kansas City, Missouri. And he has his own website that he makes and maintains. It's kind of got that classic, I don't know that much about websites, but Uh like that HTML kind of like...
1: Uh-huh, you know, it's, uh-huh. a, yeah, yeah. it's a
0: great website, uh-huh. um, but he does deep dives on famous American trials and he links like video and original um, writings and all of this really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. He does a really great job. So his website's always a great jumping off point. But, you know, I read, I don't know, 50,000 stupid articles <laughs> and put this thing together. <laughs> so uh, that's it. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To
0: help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon. www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders
1: If you enjoyed this episode it would be amazing for Muriel and I if you texted it to a loved one in your life who would also enjoy it
0: We love hearing from you You all keep us inspired and motivated
1: To reach out to us leave us a review on Apple Podcasts Rate us
0: on Spotify
1: Leave us a voicemail or send us a voice memo and we'll put it in an episode Tag
0: us on social media We
1: even have email
0: You can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode, or you can visit www.murielsmurders.com.
1: Our music is by Mario Casolini. Find him on Instagram at Casolini Beats. See you later. Be I loose. am unworthy of your love, Jody Dong.